Well, good morning. If you will, please, once you get your songbooks marked, turn over to Matthew chapter 16, a text that is familiar, I'm sure, to many in the audience today, but that's where we're going to begin this morning, Matthew chapter 16. While Jesus was on the earth, He promised to establish His church. In Matthew the 16th chapter and in verse 18, the text says, I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, the idea of death and the devil himself, shall not prevail against it. Now there's some disagreement among Bible scholars about exactly what the rock is here. Is it Peter himself? I tend to believe that it is the confession which Peter makes Just a few verses earlier, it says beginning in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district or the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks them a follow-up question which is more important than the first question. What's everybody else saying? That's one thing, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am in verse 15? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I believe there when Jesus is teaching and when He is speaking, He is saying that that is the foundation upon which the church would be built or established. And Jesus then goes on to say, not even the gates of Hades, not even death itself will prevail against the church, but it will stand forever. I think it's also important to note that the church is a fulfillment of prophecy. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. We don't have enough time in this morning's lesson to make all of the connections which show that this is a prophecy of the church which would come in the New Testament. A lot of you know all of this. Why then do we make mention of it? I want to make mention of all of this to make one very simple point. The church is important. And any time the topic is the church, we've got an important topic. Now with that said, there are a lot of people in the world today who don't seem to value the church. It's not uncommon to hear people disparage the church. There are some people who have the idea of Jesus, yes, the church, no. They profess to love Jesus and express a desire to follow Him, but they have very little use for the church. A Gallup poll survey revealed, for many people, God has been detached from religion. 
Where once a community of believers shared a common vocabulary, many now feel free to define God by their own lights. The survey finds a largely Christian nation partaking of the feasts of faith, its challenge, inspiration, and comfort a la carte. Which essentially is what was mentioned in the Bible class this morning. You just pick and choose the pieces you want. It's like going through a cafeteria line. You want this? Yeah, i get you some of that. I don't want that today, so I'm going to leave that for somebody else. And that's how many people approach Christianity and religion. And the church as a whole has not done a really good job of fighting back against that. In fact, you see a lot of churches who just accept that and play into it. And that's where you'll find things like, well, we're the church for people who don't do church. You need to be careful about that. Does that not in and of itself scream to you? There may be a red flag. There may be an issue. If we're going to be church, but we're not going to be church, how does that work? It doesn't, my friends and brethren. I'm reminded of the fellow who said, well, I can go on a 40-mile bike ride and get as much from it as I can from going to church. I can tell you, if I was going on a 40-mile bike ride, I would need Jesus by the end of that. But that's not the same as church. Another admitted that he was turned off to church by the hypocrisy of organized religion. I don't disagree with that statement. But he goes on to say, I have deep moral beliefs about what is right and wrong. Well, that sounds really good. He said, I try to live my life with integrity. Well, that sounds good too. But then he follows it up with this. And you just think about this in your life. How many people believe what this guy believes? I don't feel that I need to belong to a church to do that. What he is saying, it's packaged really nicely, but basically, I can do whatever I want to do and I'll still be okay. And again, we've got churches just buying that, selling that. We're the church for those who don't do church. Where did we go from the church being the fulfillment of prophecy, from the church being the very thing that Jesus promised to establish, to now, well, we don't really want to do church and let's just go on a bike ride and we'll find Jesus somewhere out on the trail. How did we get from one extreme to the other? And I think the answer to that is really multifaceted. It's due to a lot of things. There are a lot of people, first of all, who don't value the church because they really want to do what they want to do. And they don't want any kind of authority. They don't want anyone else interfering or telling them that that's not right. There are a lot of people in our world today who don't value the church because they don't understand what the church really is as it is taught about in the Bible. And I think going along with that, there are a lot of churches that don't understand what they are and what they ought to be doing. And that's really what we want to address in our time this morning by talking about the work of the church. And it is my hope that as we spend some time with this, we'll increase our understanding and appreciation of the Lord's church while at the same time making us stop and think to make sure that our concept of the church is the biblical concept of the church. And so with all of that said, what are we supposed to do? as the Lord's church 
in this world? Are we free to involve the church in whatever work we deem suitable? Well, let's look at that as it relates to the Scripture. I believe and I teach that the work of the church includes edification. That's a big word we don't use a whole lot in our common vocabulary, but this is defined as preparing the saints for service. What we do as a church, for example, on a day like today, is designed to help us to equip us as disciples to grow in our own lives. The Apostle Paul touches on this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we come together and we have individuals within the church who are designed to help us grow. When you have a church that is fully and scripturally organized... There will be elders whose job it is to feed and to oversee the flock. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, Take heed to yourselves, talking to elders and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd or to guide or to lead the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see the same language again. The elders who are among you, I exhort, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. And so we see that that is the goal for every local church. How is a church to be equipped? This is accomplished through the Word of God. So Paul says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28... Shepherd the church of God. How do you do that? Verse 32, I commend you, brethren, to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We must understand that edification is not the same as entertainment. It is not merely enjoying one another's Company. There's nothing wrong with us getting together and enjoying one another's company, but that's not the same as biblical edification. The equipping of the saints for service in the Lord's kingdom is done first and foremost through the Word of God. And that is why we preach and teach lessons from the Word of God. You need a Bible. If you go and the guy says, now you don't need your Bibles today then we're the church and we're not really the church. You see how that is? You need to get up and leave. We need our Bibles. Open the Bibles. This is why we sing songs. Those songs are rooted in scriptural principles. When we are encouraged to grow in our own lives, the entire body will be stronger. And that is important for us to note Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by 
every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This follows the models that we see in the New Testament. Consider the apostles in Matthew chapter 28, that great commission that is given. What does Jesus say? He tells them to do some things. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As the apostles worked with people, they baptized them. Yes, they brought them into the fold. Yes, but I think it is important to note there the teaching that is going on is ongoing, which means that even after someone obeys the gospel, what do you do? You keep teaching them. As baptized believers, it is important to note we are not finished projects. There are a lot of people, I believe even in the Lord's church, who miss that. They think, well, I've been in the water. I'm good to go. We are not finished at that point, but instead we are brothers and sisters in Christ who continue to need encouragement, who continue to need strengthening, who continue to need teaching, who continue to need to grow. Consider also the example of the Apostle Paul. It's on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches... He's talking there about people who've already been baptized into Christ. Now, I believe and understand that much of Paul's time was spent working with the lost, but he also spent a whole lot of time with those who were already saved in Acts 20 and 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Who's he warning there? That's those who've already been baptized, those who are already members of the church. I think it's important to note. How many letters do we have of the Apostle Paul that are written to the lost? To our knowledge, Paul never wrote a letter to the lost. He may very well have, but they are not preserved for us in the canon of Scripture. All his letters are to the saved. The evangelist part of the job is essential, but it is also important to work within the church. Effective evangelism will cause numerical growth at times, but it is ongoing education and edification which nurtures long-term spiritual growth. And so, as a church, we have a responsibility to one another to teach and admonish, equipping us or preparing us to go out into the world and live the lives that we should live and serve in the Lord's kingdom. The work of the church also includes evangelism. Of course, this is defined as proclaiming the gospel. The goal in Ephesians chapter 4 and 12 is to equip the saints for ministry. 
2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, "...the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men." That's what's going on with regard to edification. "...who will be able to teach others also." That's evangelism. The church is to be the pillar and ground or the foundation of the truth, 1 Timothy 3 and 15. We don't create the truth. We don't just make it up as we go. But instead, we find the truth in the Word of God and we share that out with a lost and dying world. The Lord is expecting His people to be involved with evangelism again That follows the biblical model we see in Scripture. Jesus' disciples make more disciples. Now, how do we do this? Part of this is done through our conduct. How are we acting? What kind of example are we setting for others. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We have the example in 1 Peter chapter 3 of wives who are married to an unbelieving husband and he says there, if you'll be submissive to your husbands, that some who do not obey the word without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The men are able to see that there is a difference in how they act and how their believing spouse acts. And that attracts them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But part of this is done through our confession. There are a lot of people who get the first one right but we never actually get to the second one. At some point, at some point, we've got to open our mouths and tell people why we're different. And of course, that is because of our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2 and 9 and 10, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim... That means you're telling others. You're speaking it verbally. Proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. And so it is through the example that we set. People are watching us. They know you're here today. They can see your vehicle as they drive by. And they're watching and they're listening to what you say and they're listening to how you respond to situations. But they're also perhaps waiting on you to tell them what's different about you. They need to be taught. I think it's important for us to understand that it can be easy for churches to get so caught up in what we think the church is to be for us that we fail to see that the church is to seek and save the lost. That is what Jesus told the people in the day of Zacchaeus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to share a little story with you. You may have heard it before. It's not original to me. It is 
the story of the life-saving station. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for those who were lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and gave of their time, money, and effort to support its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly kept. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided, and so they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions so they hired out lifeboat crews to do that work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations And there was a lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower built outside of the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split among the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. I think there's just so much truth in that. We get caught up in what we want and what's good for me. And that may not be what's good for the whole. That may not be what's good for this church. And that may not be what's good for the lost. The church is never designed as a club or as an organization where we go to get our fancies met. It's always about pouring out of ourselves into the hearts and minds of others, whether they be our brethren or whether they be hopefully our brethren in the future. 
And in addition to what churches do locally, we see New Testament churches involved with evangelism in other places. Churches can spread the gospel by sending out evangelists. We have examples of that in Scripture. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas out to help a new congregation in Antioch. And then just a couple of chapters later, you can read about that in Acts chapter 11, but in Acts 13, that church in Antioch grew and they were then able to send out preachers as well. Churches can also spread the gospel by supporting evangelists in other areas. In Philippians chapter 4, you can read about how the church in Philippi supported Paul not while he was working in Philippi, but while he was working elsewhere in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can read that the brethren in Macedonia support Paul, not while he was there, but while he was working with the Corinthian church. And so that is certainly an authorized model in Scripture. And so the work of the church includes evangelism. We're not just here as a social club or a social entity. We are here to help people to save the lost and dying world, just as Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then the third work that we see in Scripture is the work of benevolence. Again, this is not a word we use a whole lot, but it simply means taking care of others. And biblically speaking, we are, we are talking about providing for the needy saints or the needy brethren. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin there. In the New Testament, we read about the early church caring for its own. You actually see that all the way back in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 4, we have the example of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the pro- brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Flip over to chapter 6. There is a specific example here where you have a group of widows who are being neglected. And what does the church do? They figure out a way to take care of those widows. In Acts chapter 11, the church in Antioch provided for brethren, not brethren locally, but brethren who were living elsewhere, brethren who were in Judea. Acts chapter 11 and in verse 27 it says, In those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brethren living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. If we go over to Romans chapter 15... In Romans chapter 15, you have the churches of Macedonia and Achaia sending resources to the brethren in Jerusalem. 
Romans 15, beginning verse 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And so this is what we see when we open the pages of Scripture. We see brethren taking care of brethren. And the organization and worship of the early church accommodated such work. Deacons were appointed to handle such needs. In Philippians chapter 1, we have elders and we have deacons and saints. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've already looked at Acts chapter 6. I believe that is, if not the appointing of deacons, it's certainly a precursor to the office of deacon. We also see in Scripture that when money or resources changed hands, the elders facilitated that exchange. In Acts 11 and verse 30, it says, They also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. There was no centralized agency. There was no missionary society. There was no outside organization. In his commentary on Acts, J.W. McGarvey observes correctly, the elders being the rulers of the congregations were the proper persons to receive the gifts and to see to the proper distribution of them among the needy. Now, I want to go off on a little bit of a side point here. I have had two separate conversations with ministers in two separate denominations over the last six months to a year. Both of their denominations are debating biblical issues. And neither one of those preachers is really happy with the solutions or the answers that their denomination is coming up with. But in both cases, I've said, well, why don't you just leave? And do you want to know what the answer is? Now again, these these men are independent of one another. They don't know one another. They're coming from different religious backgrounds. But do you want to know the reason? It's money. And in both cases, they've said, well, if we leave, then we won't get our share of basically the money that comes through the missionary society. That's not the terminology they use, but it's the same concept. And my response is, well, you know, when you look in the Bible, every church just handled their own business. And if there is a need for an exchange, we don't send it to some headquarters that then shoots out the money and shoots out what we've got to teach. You don't see that in the Bible. And I always kind of laugh. I say, you know, I can get up and I can teach what I want. And all they got to do is just tell me not to come back. Because that's the biblical model. This idea of there being some kind of earthly headquarters, you don't find that in Scripture. 
And I believe in God's divine wisdom. One of the reasons for that is because he understood that any time you centralize money, you are centralizing power and control. And what happens when the person who is in control of that goes astray? Well, at least in two separate cases over the last year, You've got denominational groups who are going in the wrong direction. And you've got men who are forced to make a choice. Do we go along with what we don't believe is right or do we give up a big chunk of money? What the Scripture has in place is elders and deacons to handle those things, local churches handling their own work, and that being done on a localized level, from individual to individual, from group to group, but certainly not sent to a centralized agency. The collection for needy saints was also a part of the weekly assembly. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, we do that and we gather up these funds. Can we just do whatever we want with those funds? And the answer to that is... No. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are limitations to church benevolence. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to give you some specific limitations regarding widows. Paul gives these to Timothy. There is an age restriction in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in verse 9, he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. In verse 16, widows who had believing family members were not to be supported by the church. Let her care for them. Their own families were to support them so that the church would not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So we have those examples in Scripture. And also it is important for us to know that anytime you see money being given, it's not just being handed out on the street to anybody. It's being given to brethren. In every case of church benevolence, when you take money out of the church treasury, the recipients were believers in need. In Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, to minister to the saints, to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. 2 Corinthians 8 and 4, you see the same thing in 9 and 1, the ministering to the saints. Now as individual Christians, if I'm pulling money out of my pocket, I have a responsibility to all who are in need. 
like that good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, or as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. But the church, when we're talking about the church, the church is not, nor has it ever been intended to be a social agency to cure all of the social ills in the world. Let's circle back to the beginning of this lesson. We said there's a lot of people in this world who have no regard for the church until they want something from the church. We've got to be careful with that. And sometimes we get labeled, we're, we're just heartless. We just don't care. But we need to be very, very careful. The church is limited in what it can do. The world doesn't seem to get this. We understand this if you go to McDonald's. If you go to McDonald's tomorrow, you're driving down the road, let's say you're going to Heber or you're going to Mountain View, you stop at McDonald's, you want a Dr. Pepper. And you say, hey, while I'm getting that drink, can, can you guys change my tires? Those folks at McDonald's, bless their heart, they're doing everything within their power to get your sandwich and your drink right. Do you really want to mess them with your tires? They're going to look at you like you've got four heads because that's not what they do. At the same time, you keep driving. Oh, there's a jiffy lube. Let's pull in. Hey, can you guys, I need an oil change. I need my tires rotated and I need a Big Mac. And they're going to be like, well, don't come here for that. That's not what we do. But you will have people walk in the church house and they expect the church to do everything. They just don't get it. You'll have folks who have no connection to any church and they'll spend the day calling up church after church after church looking for somebody to pay their rent, pay their electric bill, give them cash. That's what the church is supposed to do in their minds. To them, the church is better than a bank because at the bank you got to fill out papers, you got to qualify, and then you got to pay it back. But at the church, you get money with no strings attached. And if they don't give it their heart, then you could just say they're heartless and they don't care. The problem with all that thinking is it's not biblical. God has a pattern for what the church can do with its money. Just as He does for all things. There's a pattern for worship. There's a pattern for salvation. And there's a pattern for what we can do with our money. Wait a minute. There's a pattern for what we can do with the Lord's money. And if we misunderstand that simple concept, we're shifting the church away from its primary mission, which is spiritual in nature. And so, as in all areas, we see a pattern set forth in the New Testament. When we let the church do its proper work, it will equip the saints for the work of ministry. When we are a part of the church's proper work, we will edify the body of Christ and we will grow up in all things into Him who is the head, that being Jesus. And so, if we're going to be the church that Jesus built, we've got to understand what the work of the church is and we've got to carry out that work. And if we will do that, then as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, we will bring glory to the Lord in the church. In the church. That blessed bride of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to be a part of the Lord's church. You do that by following the pattern set forth in the New Testament. That pattern begins with hearing the word and believing it. 
confessing your faith, repenting of your sins, being baptized to wash those sins away. Perhaps there's someone who needs to do that even this morning. Or maybe there's someone who is a member of the Lord's church, but you have let yourself get into something you don't need to be in, or you've let yourself get distracted, or you just need the prayers and the support of your brethren. If we can help you spiritually, won't you come? Right together we stand while we sing.